they did that for six days per week. <laughs> that's that's just insane. I, I can't even contemplate that. I, I would hate, hate it if I had to be a part of that study. That Triathlon Show, episode 91. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we take a deep dive into training for running, and specifically, what do we actually know from science about training to improve three of the greatest determinants of running performance, those being VO2 max, the aerobic threshold, and running economy. And just to be clear, when I say what we know, I'm talking hard evidence from training intervention studies, not anecdotal evidence and best practices. Also, after that, I'll talk a little bit about the initial responses to the That Triathlon Show survey that I mentioned last week, and that's where you can make your opinion count in terms of what content you'll hear on this podcast going forward. And this episode that you're hearing right now may be a direct result of that, so uh, that's a little teaser for you. You can take that survey on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash survey. And that's also linked to in the episode description in your podcast app and in the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com. But more on that later. Before diving into the main topic for today, though, let's start by thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydrations that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You can use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps, for 15% off any of their electrolyte products. They recently published an article on their blog called Four Things We Learned from Getting Our Sweat Test Data Published in an Academic Journal that contains four very interesting points related to why you need to tailor your hydration to yourself individually. The analysis was conducted and and the publication was written by two independent researchers. It was just based on data that uh, precision hydration has gathered over the years. And uh, I'll talk about two of the points today and the final two points in the next episode. But the first point that they learned, the first thing that they learned was that the average sweat sodium concentration of the male pro athletes in the sample, I think it was something like 700 athletes included in the sample. So the average uh, male sodium content was uh, 950 milligrams per liter. And the range of those concentrations in the pro-athlete sample was 350 milligrams per liter to 1900 milligrams per liter. So that difference is almost 600% more sodium in the sweat of the most salty sweater compared to the least salty sweater. Second, we also have a new sponsor that I'm very happy and proud to announce, and that's Triathlon Corner, a new online shop at triathlon-corner.store. Get your triathlon, swim, bike and run gear and uh, apparel. They have a great selection of products with uh, brands like Garmin, Zip, Zone Free, uh, Hoka Oneone, to name just a few. They have great, great deals and, of course, worldwide shipping. And I actually personally know Jan, who is the founder of Triathlon Corner. 
He's a really great guy, a triathlete and a triathlon coach himself. He's French, but he lives in Helsinki uh, with his wife and his family and uh, has lived in Helsinki for a long time. So that's why I know him from my time there and uh, uh, hanging out in uh, triathlon uh, circuits in Helsinki. And uh, I can 150% vouch for Jan and anything he does. In addition to having great products and great deals, you will get the best customer service experience you've ever had. Uh, That's a given with everything that Jan's involved with. So again, check out this new online store, triathloncorner.store, and that's triathlon-corner.store. And I'll link to that as well in the episode description and in the show notes. Alright, so let's dive into discussing what we know from science about training to improve VO2 max, the aerobic threshold, and running economy. So to start off, most of uh, this episode is based on a very detailed uh, review paper called Training to Enhance the Physiological Determinants of Long-Distance Running Performance. Can valid recommendations be given to runners and coaches based on current scientific knowledge? Uh, That's the name of the paper. It will be linked to in the description and the show notes. It's uh, published by or written by three English researchers. Uh, Adrian Midgley, Lars McNaughton, and Andrew Jones, sorry. And uh, again, those determinants, the physiological determinants, are the maximal oxygen uptake, VO2 max, running economy, and the aerobic threshold. And actually, they call it the lactate threshold in this study. And I was confused for a long time reading this paper until I found a figure quite far down in the t- into the paper, where it turns out that the terminology that they use to distinguish between the aerobic and anaerobic threshold are that the lactate threshold they consider the aerobic threshold and the lactate turn point, the anaerobic. So it's very clear once you get to that point, but it wasn't clear at first, but I, I also got that confirmed by... Uh, by I think it was Andrew that uh, I sent emails to all three of them and I think Andrew responded and said that my interpretation was correct so we now know that when they talk about lactate threshold in this paper it's actually what I in my terminology called the aerobic threshold and for more information about that you can go to episode 71 which uh, is all about the thresholds the aerobic and the anaerobic threshold and trying to remove some of the confusion but uh, some confusion will still remain always on this topic anyway these these three determinants they explain more than 70 percent of between subject variance in long distance running performance And uh, the way it does that is that the VO2 max is sort of your ceiling. So how fit can you really get? Uh, Because then you have your aerobic threshold in long distance running. It determines the, the, the percentage of VO2 max that your aerobic threshold is at. That kind of is your sustainable VO2. So your sustainable oxygen uptake and oxygen utilization in the muscles. And that is called performance vo2 obviously depends on the distance that you're running at but the aerobic threshold is important in all distances from uh, mid to shorter long distance races up to the marathon and beyond of course so it is important in all of them but then things like the anaerobic threshold become even more important in in shorter distance running Anyway, there's a great figure in the paper that you can look at and uh, that shows you how these things come together. But that performance VO2, so the oxygen utilization that you can use at a certain pace, is uh, a sustainable percentage of your VO2 max. So there we have 
two of these variables, VO2max and the aerobic threshold included. And then that performance VO2, that in turn determines the, the highest sustainable rate of ATP, which is your energy source in the cells. Uh, so the highest sustainable rate of ATP uh, resynthesis. And uh, did I pronounce that right? I'm not quite sure. But anyway, so that rate of, uh, of ATP uh, generation in the cells that um, together with the running economy determines your race pace or the pace that you can sustain at uh, at that intensity because if you and another runner are generating just as much ATP you have the same via not necessarily the same but VO2 max and aerobic threshold but they combine to give you the same rate of ATP generation then if one runner is more economical than the other then they will use less ATP to go at the same pace so they will at the end of the day be faster so that's running economy very important and that's the third determinant and uh, how we train any of these uh, physiological factors that is uh, we need to as usual in training we need to apply some sort of training stress and training stress is the uh, the combination, the product of training frequency, training duration, and training intensity. And if we have an appropriate amount of stress, then it's called an adaptive stress. But if it's higher than uh, than what we need, and actually so high that we don't really adapt to it and improve the physiology, then it becomes maladaptive. And that's when we talk about things like non-functional overreaching or even overtraining. Overtraining is a very serious clinical syndrome, so it's very rare to get into that. But it's very normal for many people. They actually train too hard and they enter a state of non-functional overreaching, so they don't improve. But uh, yeah, we need to have that stress. It needs to be above a certain adaptation threshold. Otherwise, we won't improve either. So, so the right amount of stress is definitely something that is, in all training, super important. And, and that applies to all three of these variables uh, individually, as well as uh, overall for your, your training and your performance in triathlon or in running. So let's start by talking about VO2 max. First, before going into uh, long slow distance training and its effect on VO2 max, which is the first uh, type of training we'll investigate, I want to point out a, a related episode related to VO2 max, I should say. It's episode 20. It's called Masters Athletes, How to Minimize the Performance Decline for Aging Triathletes. If you want to learn more about VO2 max, whether you're a Masters Athlete or not, that's the episode you should go to. I talk about that quite a bit in episode 20. Uh, then next, let's move into the factors that can potentially and that have been investigated and that can potentially improve VO2 max. Long, slow distance training, high volume. Uh, put simply, there's no evidence that this really increases VO2 max. Uh, for example, we have well, we have one study that kind of showed that it can maybe improve it, but there was some flaws in the study. Uh, it was uh, a study by Tanaka, and they reported that increasing the training volume of well-trained distance runners from 90 to 120 kilometers per week resulted in a statistically significant 4.8% increase in VO2 max. But the problem is that they also had two days per week of training slightly above uh, the aerobic threshold velocity, so it may even have been close to the anaerobic threshold. And since we didn't, we don't know from the study what the runners did in their normal training, it may be that they actually did a bit more intensity than they were used to. 
So, so it's difficult to interpret uh, the results of this study, and there really is nothing else, according to this review paper, uh, that in terms of improving VO2 max from increasing training volume in well-trained runners, I should say. And and another interesting point that th- these researchers make is that it would be interesting to investigate whether there is a, tr- a threshold beyond which no further VO2 max improvement can occur if you increase volume. Maybe if you're just running 40 kilometers per week, which a triathlete may do, and you increase it to 80, which would be quite a lot for triathletes, but still, as a runner maybe, uh, then then that could improve your VO2 max, but increasing that beyond 80 kilometers per week, would that improve VO2 max? Maybe not, we don't know. So, and anyway, we don't know from science if uh, increasing volume actually improves VO2 max. We do know that long, slow distance training causes physiological adaptations that should be beneficial for VO2 max, but again, we're going into the theory here and making quite a few assumptions. So it hasn't really been shown yet in research in a training intervention, and that's what this episode is all about. Uh, and it's likely that, as I said, what you what got you here won't get you there once you reach a certain point in terms of volume. Uh, so for runners with a lot of room for improvement in their VO2 max, Volume and long slow distance training may be great, but not necessarily for already well-trained runners. Those are just my two cents and my interpretation, uh, and uh, that falls in line with what these researchers say as well. And uh, yeah, one, one note I should make is that there's a ton of great retrospective studies showing that in the real world, world long slow distance training really is what most successful endurance athletes, world champions, Olympic champions... All successful endurance athletes are doing that to a large extent. It's the concept of polarized training. Anywhere from 75 to 90% of their training is typically below their aerobic threshold. So, But it's not clear really whether this is effective for recreational athletes that are training a lot, lot less because the duration threshold that you need for adaptations may not be exceeded. You know, when, you, when we talked about training stress and the adaptation threshold, there are adaptation thresholds for duration, for intensity and for frequency. And well, maybe those duration and frequency combined to form a total duration threshold. But uh, yeah, um, that's just... Something that that needs to be investigated in recreational athletes more than it has been, because it hasn't been investigated a lot. Next we have intensity. How does intensity affect VO2 max? So, one study by uh, Bilat et colleagues, they reported that the VO2 max of well-trained distance runners increased by 5.4% in response to the inclusion of training between 90-100% to of VO2 max despite a 10% decrease in training volume. But several other studies have reported uh, contradictory results. They included 90-100% to of VO2 max type training, and uh, it didn't cause uh, statistically insignificant increase in VO2 max. And this review lists quite a few of them, four, four of these studies. And uh, they had small sample sizes, and uh, therefore very low statistical power. So it's difficult to interpret because actually they may have improved percentage-wise similarly or at least improved clearly, uh, but uh, it just wasn't statistically significant because of the, the small sample size. And this may now sound a bit grave for VO2 max training, the way I just uh, framed this with saying that there are several studies that have showed, uh, shown insignificant results. And I just mentioned one that is uh, listed here in uh, the research paper, but I am, it's difficult to take notes for 
this kind of review. So so there are quite a few more that showed uh, positive results from VO2 max training, but not too many. I know there have been a couple of more coming out since this paper was published, this review paper, I should say at least. So, but but the point is that it's it's not quite clear yet because there are so many contradictory results. And also, there are a couple of studies included in this review that reported a statistically significant increase in VO2 max in response to the addition of training at between 70 to 85% of VO2 max. So that is 85%, you can roughly say, is your anaerobic threshold for many runners that are uh, not elite runners. And uh, so 70% may be maybe between the aerobic and the anaerobic threshold. So so that's that's also interesting. You may, maybe don't need to run at VO2 max to actually improve your VO2 max. There's a very interesting discussion here in this paper about what velocity you need to run at to actually elicit VO2 max. So how fast do you need to run to get your aerobic system to be firing on all cylinders use the most the maximum amount of oxygen that your body is capable of and it's not quite the if you do a test in a lab you get a speed a pace associated with your vo2 max but you don't need to train at that exact speed to get to your vo2 max there's one study here cited that showed that at least if you train at 92 percent of that speed then you still can get to your maximum oxygen utilization capacity. So, And that will probably allow you, because you will use less anaerobic energy sources, to do a little bit more of that type of training. So you will, you will accumulate a longer duration at a high intensity at VO2 max, even though it's not the speed associated with VO2 max. So it's important to make that difference between VO2 max and speed at VO2 max. Anyway, so, so that's, that's something that we don't know either, but uh, that you can hypothesize that running a little bit slower than your actual speed at VO2 max may be more optimal because you can accumulate more time at VO2 max. One Another study here cited shows that if you do a training session where you run at the speed associated with VO2 max, then uh, your time, the time that you run at VO2 max is a nine or nine and a half minutes. There are two studies here that came to similar findings. So that's that's not a lot. Maybe if you just ran at 92% of VO2 max, then you would get that time up by quite a few minutes and, and that would be a more optimal training stimulus. But again, this is just a hypothesis. We don't really know that. One piece of related listening to this is episode 85 with Roger Schmitz from Moxie. Uh, they do this the oxygenation measurements, the the SMO2 muscle oxygen saturation measurements and uh, and they found that yeah you can when people start using that then you actually start to spend a longer time in your intervals in that very beneficial deoxygenating zone but you don't go too far so you start using anaerobic energy sources so you can maximize the time that you get out of your training so that that's an interesting interesting follow-up to this episode if you haven't listened to that already all right let's move on to the next training intervention what about if you go harder than vo2 max intervals well there is uh, one study that found that vo2 max did not change when 5 to 15 second sprint intervals with a work to rest ratio of 1 to 5 or 1 to 3 so much more rest than work were added to the training programs 
of distance runners who previously performed only long slow distance training and that has also been reported for cyclists triathletes and duathletes but there was another study that reported a significant increase in the vo2 max of runners with a similar initial vo2 max and training history uh, in response to the inclusion of uh, intervals at with 15 seconds sprints basically 132 percent of the speed at vo2 max and they had 15 seconds rest as well so quite one to one ratio so quite a bit of shorter rest compared to that previously mentioned study so if you do very high intensity training that zone six type of training then you may be able to to improve your vo2 max if you keep your rest intervals short enough but that's just based on one one study then there was another study that compared different intensities let me just scroll down here so i can uh, see the overview yeah so they had three different groups one trend did intervals at 106 percent of v vo2 max which is the velocity at vo2 max and another group did intervals at 132 percent so that was uh, yeah that was the one i just mentioned and then we had uh, one that did 94 uh, percent of v vo2 max so again slightly below the speed at vo2 max and all of these improved vo2 max but the sprint group that did the highest, they improved the least, 3.6%. And the two other groups, 106% and 94% of VO2 max, they improved by 6 and 5.9% respectively. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting. One of the few comparison studies that we have in, in this review, which is uh, there's definitely a lot more research that needs to be done with including these control groups and comparison groups. But, but yeah, uh, that's uh, an interesting thing to thing to note that uh, maybe those supra vo2 max intervals aren't really the best thing finally what about resistance training we talked about that in episode 81 the triathletes strength training for formula and uh, as i said then there is uh, nothing that resistance training does to improve vo2 max so yeah and that, that has been shown many times that's pretty clear so that's about it what about the studies i'm just scrolling through the table that i have here there are quite a few studies, as I mentioned, that uh, did training between the aerobic and the anaerobic threshold, most of them closer to or at the anaerobic threshold, that improved VO2 max. And that kind of uh, relates to what John Brewer said in episode 80, that threshold training can improve VO2 max. And I was a bit surprised to hear that. I, I knew that it could, but, but my impression was that VO2 max training is much more efficient than threshold training to improve VO2 max. But looking at this table, albeit, as I said, it's a few years old and new studies have come since then, it still seems that it, it's not clear at all that VO2 max training is more efficient than threshold training to improve VO2 max. For example, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples here. There was one study that had two groups, one trained at 104% of a 10k pace. Okay, that's maybe too high to be... Well, that, that may be close to the anaerobic threshold or above it. Yeah, it's, it's probably above it. And then one, the other group trained at 109%, which is probably pretty close to VO2 max, actually. So so they both improved a lot, 6.2% and 12.3% statistically significantly. But then the thing, the yeah, the studies that I want to point out here was the... Let me see here. Yeah, so there was, there was one group that did... Uh, no, wait. Sorry. Yeah, here it is. Two times two 
two sessions per week of uh, training at the maximum lactate steady state. So that's the anaerobic threshold, basically. They did a 30 to 60 minute continuous MLSS, maximum lactate steady state run, and they did three long, slow distance runs. The maximum lactate steady state was exactly 85% of VO2 max, or that was on average, I guess. And they improved VO2 max statistically significantly as well. So, and, and there are a few more that are like between the aerobic threshold and the anaerobic threshold here, as I already mentioned. So, so that's basically what I wanted to point out here, that, that it's not super clear at the moment. And VO2 max train definitely has its place, and we'll return to that. But, uh, but yeah... Um, it's clear as mud, as they say. And a lot of the studies that did not report statistically significant changes in VO2 max, max they actually had an average improvement in the 3 to 6% range, but there just weren't enough participants to have the statistical power to get to significance. So that's about it for VO2 max. Let's move on to the aerobic threshold. All right, so before starting to talk about how to train to improve the aerobic threshold, I want to point out again a related episode. Episode 71, Threshold Confusion, Aerobic, Anaerobic, Lactate, Functional Help. That's the name of the episode. And uh, that's the way I felt when I read this study first and couldn't for the life of me figure out why they're why they were doing 60-minute continuous lactate threshold runs that seemed impossible until I figured out that, okay, they're actually talking about the aerobic threshold and not the anaerobic, and it's uh, they termed the anaerobic threshold in this paper the lactate turn point and not the lactate threshold. I will keep talking about aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold as I'm used to. I like that terminology the most. Anyway, the section starts by talking about the impact of training volume at or below the aerobic threshold and how that impacts your aerobic threshold. And there was one study, but it was just four weeks long, so I don't think it's very relevant. But uh, they investigated the effects of increasing the volume of sub-aerobic threshold training or aerobic threshold training on uh, on the aerobic threshold of distance runner and runners, and they had no significant increase in the lactate threshold despite increasing the volume by 33% each week. Which, by the way, don't try this at home. <laughs> Be more careful. Have a gradual progression, 10%, the 10% rule. And even that, I find, is often too aggressive. I, I don't tend to use that rule, at least in my coaching. I, I definitely don't do a 10% week-by-week increase. But it's maybe 10%, but then it goes down. Okay, that's a side note. I won't get sucked into that rabbit hole. But, okay, so we don't know anything. That's the only study that these guys found in their review. We don't know anything about how distance affects the aerobic threshold because, simply put, you can't expect to get an improvement after four weeks of increased volume. So then this uh, review moves on to talk about how training at or around on the slightly faster side of the aerobic threshold affects the aerobic threshold itself. And uh, again, there's one big problem, and that's that most of these studies have been done on sedentary, non-trained individuals who generally will improve no matter what kind of training you throw at them. It doesn't matter if it's uh, VO2 max training volume at X, Y, or Z pace. So 
One example that illustrates this is uh, a study in untrained women that demonstrated a significant increase in the aerobic threshold during four months of training at lactate threshold intensity, but then they continued to train for eight months at that intensity and there was no further enhancements. So as you see, once, once they got a bit more trained, they didn't keep improving with that same training. Uh, you need to change things up in training. That's a good lesson to take away from that. But uh, it also points to the fact that uh, these sorts of studies are pretty flawed. Then higher intensities, what about that? Well, there are several studies with uh, runners that uh, included paces, uh, speeds, intensities like the V delta 50, as they call it. And that's the velocity midway between, between the aerobic threshold and the speed at VO2 max. So in many cases, that may actually be pretty close to the anaerobic threshold. And then there are also studies that, again, many of these intensities, even though they are termed differently, are actually the same in practice. And that's another thing that we talk about in that threshold episode. Uh, a couple of studies that investigated training at the maximum lactate steady state, MLSS, and, at, and another study investigated the effects of OBLA training onset of blood lactate accumulation well those two are essentially the same as the anaerobic threshold and the interesting thing here is that although when you as i said express the intensity as a percentage of vo2 max so for example around 85 percent of vo2 max is generally where you have the anaerobic threshold uh, in uh, trained athletes not not pros but trained athletes and and uh, you take that fact and the fact that uh, the studies were of similar duration and they had similar starting points for their VO2 max, uh, sorry, their aerobic threshold, the participants in the studies, that is. It's interesting to see that the studies at uh, V delta 50 had no significant increases in, uh, uh, in the aerobic threshold, whereas the MLSS and OBLA studies did find significant increases. So similar types of studies, but contradictory results again. The study that reported the largest mean increase in the aerobic threshold was actually 10.6%. That's, that's pretty insane. Uh, that involved 20 minutes of running at the speed of OBLA onset of blood lactate accumulation. So that's a classic Jack Daniels run, as I like to call it, a 20-minute threshold run. They did that for six days per week. <laughs> that's that's just insane. I, I can't even contemplate that. I, I would hate, hate it if I had to be a part of that study but uh and, and it's uh interesting that they didn't start getting into non-functional overreaching uh but we don't know what would have happened if they would have kept going going with that of course so and that was in addition to their normal training so they had some lsd training as well but i i'm guessing that they did, did that as part of those 20 minute obla runs so they did a, a, a an lsd warm-up and cool down to get some volume in so, so anyway, when you look at it like this, they did a massive amount of volume at uh, at this intensity. It was actually 91% of VO2 max in, in this case. Uh, that may explain or be part of the explanation for the differences that they did more volume at this higher intensity. So they may have just crossed that adaptation threshold. And in the other positive study, the thing that, that kind of stands out when you analyze this uh, this study is that they added two days per week of training with uh, let me see here 30 to 60 minutes at the maximum lactate steady state uh, so i don't know if it was continuous or intervals i'm guessing intervals uh, because uh, 
there would be very hard at least 60 minutes would be probably almost impossible to go in training two days per week at the mlss but anyway they were used to doing only long slow distance training before the study began so so that additional stress with two days per week of anaerobic threshold training mlss training that that was uh, probably a new stimulus and in many of the other studies as i'll talk about a bit later one of the problems is that we don't know what type of training they did before starting the study and uh, that's a big big issue in uh, in the existing literature really and, and that's one of the reasons that it's so difficult to say anything about about why people maybe maybe don't improve or maybe do improve Anyway, there are a couple of other studies in addition to those two and two that I mentioned. Uh, when you look at the table that lists all the studies included in this review, so actually there are four studies that showed that investigated in total, sorry, there are seven studies in total that investigated uh, the effects on the aerobic threshold. Four of them showed positively statistically significant results uh, on the aerobic threshold and the type of training that they did was uh, as i mentioned the mlss training the obla training and then another study with obla training and then the final one was intervals at 85 to 95 percent of vo2 max so again around that mlss anaerobic threshold and uh, and above it approaching vo2 max but not not quite vo2 max they also did so that was one training per se, training session per week and then two fart leg sessions around 10k pace and then three to four long slow distance sessions and the negative studies was uh, the v delta 15 trolls that i mentioned two studies of of that type and then there was one uh, one study the final study that was negative had uh, one they had 12 weeks and it was a bit different no sorry eight weeks and it was a bit different the first four weeks it was one obla so anaerobic threshold training, let's call it threshold training for simplicity, one VO2 max training sessions, session and then four long slow distance sessions. And in weeks five through eight, it was uh, one OBLA session, three VO2 max sessions and two long slow distance sessions. I'm thinking that they may have had some overtraining there. They actually decreased their VO2 max in those last last four weeks with three times VO2 max sessions per week plus a threshold session. They did improve economy, running economy a whole lot. That's a bit of a sidetrack. But uh, here's there's an interesting theory for why it may be necessary to train because it looks definitely looks like you still you need to train harder than the aerobic threshold to improve the aerobic threshold. Although, as I'll say, we don't know that. But that is uh, maybe the best hypothesis at the moment. And the theory for why this may be the case is that type 2 uh, fast twitch skeletal muscle fibers are not recruited to any great extent until close to 90% of VO2 max. And so these fibers are actually probably relatively untrained uh, in almost any endurance athletes or are untrained in, in most endurance athletes. We, we just know that. So... So the training responses associated with aerobic threshold improvements, since they may be related, that's another hypothesis, they may be related to to, uh, to muscle adaptations that reduce uh, lactate production and increases its disposal at higher running velocities. This kind of higher intensity training uh, may be necessary to actually impose those kinds of, of adaptations in in the muscles because if you just use and activate the type 1 muscle fibers your type 2 muscle fibers will never start to have these adaptations and and help with getting rid of the lactate and 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 also processing it and using it as energy so so that's one theory but uh 
there's also other theories. I won't go into much detail here, uh, but uh, basically what it comes down to is that some theories hypothesize that you need an elevated lactate concentration in your blood to actually increase your aerobic threshold, even though your lactate at your aerobic threshold, your lactate levels are, are low uh, by definition. But uh, the theory stands, and, and that is another theory for why you may need to train at the, the anaerobic threshold or even above it to improve the aerobic threshold. One, one interesting study found that 20 of 31 runners had blood lactate concentrations at less than 2.5 millimoles per liter at a running velocity uh, of 90% of VO2 max. So that's a very low lactate concentration. At, at that speed, they were obviously well-trained, but not super elite either. And 10 of 31 runners, actually, they were even at 95% of VO2 max when they... I think they were pretty pretty good, actually, looking at this. 10 of 31 runners had, had 2.5 millimoles per liter of blood, blood lactate at 95% of VO2 max. So uh, this is make, raises an interesting point, an interesting theory, that if you are a well-trained runner, a very well-trained runner, but, but again, you don't need to be a professional runner to, for this to be applicable to you, then the same type of training intensity that has been hypothesized to be the most effective for VO2 max, which is VO2 max type training, may be needed actually to get aerobic threshold improvements because your lactate concentration isn't high enough uh, if you go way beyond or below, sorry, below that 90% of VO2 max. You might just as well go 95% and get both VO2 max type training and aerobic threshold training at the same time. That's a theory. We don't know that, and but uh, yeah, I want to give you some food for thought here. So, so yeah, um, just things to think about, and uh, and that again, yeah, again, tying this in with the polarized training, this may explain why we see in practice, in retrospective studies, that so many of the world's best endurance athletes have a really polarized training approach, where a lot of their high intensity training are actually at the anaerobic threshold or even above it uh so yeah and often quite a bit above it so closer to the vo2 max type training that's uh yeah that's very interesting but uh, that's uh polarized training is definitely stuff that we'll need to talk about another day uh I look forward to that at some point i would actually like to bring a guest on i have someone in mind but we'll see about that uh anyway let's move on to the final physiological determinant running economy So to improve running economy, I'll first talk a little bit about volume and uh, related factors. And although these are not direct training interventions, there are some indicative evidence, at least, that runners will adopt their most economical running style over time. And uh, so therefore it has been suggested that high training volumes may be implicated and important for improving running economy. Uh, there's one study that has reported that uh, training volume was not associated with better running economy. That was a review study. But uh, so again, but no training intervention studies have really been done on this topic. So we we don't know for sure black black and white uh, if this is the case or not. But but I'll just want to talk a little bit about volume anyway. Another study found a significant correlation between running economy and years of training. It wasn't the actual volume, but years of running, years in running. So that may, may be 
uh, more important than the actual training volume we don't really know yet but uh, in some, in one way or another training volume or years in training has been implicated as important in running economy and it makes sense that it would be but we don't know from any sort of uh, training interventions and uh, interventional uh, control studies or studies at all for that matter so that's uh, that's it for training volume how about high intensity training does that improve running economy Again, there are quite a few contradictory findings here when it comes to high-intensity training. This uh, review paper lists a few studies that uh, showed that interval training at 93 to 106% of VO2 max and uh, continuous running at OBLA, so the anaerobic threshold, have been shown to improve running economy significantly. But then again, the paper lists a couple of studies that... uh, with similar intensities showed no improvements in economy. That said, again, we have the same problem of statistical power and low sample sizes. These studies actually showed percentage improvements in economy that were similar, or at least some of them did, to those positive studies, but they just didn't have the the statistical power, the sample size, to prove that with statistical significance. So there's contrasting results, but based on the amount of studies here in this list, I'm again looking at a table that I uh, I screenshotted from this study and all of them that investigated running economy. It looks like quite a few of these high intensity high intensity studies improved running economy actually more so than not. So so it it seems plausible, but we don't know for sure yet because the there's just not enough evidence and especially what we're lacking again is uh, larger sample sizes. I won't talk about these studies, the positive and negative studies in any more detail. Some of them are the same because a lot of the studies included in this review, they investigated two or even all three of the determinants that we are talking about. So they may have investigated VO2 max and aerobic threshold or VO2 max and aerobic threshold and running economy or any combination of those three variables. So so a lot of them are the same really. But again, these studies are all around about the anaerobic threshold up until VO2 max or even some of them are have groups that are above VO2 max. So those 106% of VO2 max and 132% of VO2 max or speed at VO2 max, I should say, because you can't go obviously above your VO2 max itself. Uh, they they are also included. And that's an interesting point here to make that in that study that had the 94% and 106% and 132% of speed at VO2 max, they found that running economy significantly improved in the 94% and 106% groups, but not in the group that as their quality training included that 132% of VO2 max, those sprint-like zone 6 efforts. So this may suggest that very high intensity running in zone 6 is not effective in improving running economy. Uh, so, But yeah, that's just one, one data point, so we don't really know. Finally, strength training. So since I talked about that a lot in episode 81, I'll just refer you to that. But there's a ton of evidence to suggest that strength training, when you do it with heavy weights or as explosive training or as plyometric training, or actually the explosive is not uh, exclusive from heavy weights. It can be heavy weights and explosive. Uh, so that in that case, the strength training, resistance training, 
significantly improves running economy. This has been shown a lot of times and this is something that we're very clear on and we know. And that is why I'm so big on strength training because that's actually where the area in triathlon training that we know a ton about. We know so much about it and and we can make clear guidelines on what is the right way and the wrong way. There's not just one right way, but the right direction, the, the right the right zone to be in so to say whereas here as you can see i mean i could write a running program that is uh, focused on threshold training and i could make good argumentation for why i do that but i could do the same for a running program that is based on vo2 max training we can't really distinguish which of the two is the best so it's more about the anecdotal evidence and seeing what works for the individual anyway that's uh beside the point strength training time and time again shows to improve running economy and uh, with heavy weights, with explosive weights, strength, and with plyometrics. Go and check out episode 81 if you haven't already. Oh, one more thing, stretching. That, that's important. Uh, and that is obviously a controversial topic these days because uh, some studies or many studies these days have shown that it does not really prevent injuries at all. Uh, there are studies that show that, flex- that stretching improves flexibility, which if you have uh, if you are unflexible in certain joints, that may be detrimental for running performance, for sure. Uh, but uh, on the flip side of that, more flexibility may reduce running eco- economy, actually, because you, re-lose, you lose some of the elasticity in your running gait that you had when you were less flexible. So you need to use more energy to propel yourself off the ground rather than just bouncing off the ground with that lack of elasticity, that uh, that stiffness, that spring-like motion that, and recycling energy, as it's called in, in running gait terms. Or does it? Because that's what we've been told recently, that, it, that you may lose economy. But actually this review paper cites two studies that showed that there's no relationship between flexibility and running economy in runners, neither positive nor negative. And uh, there's nothing found really. There, they cite the the paper that hypothesized that less flexibility uh, may actually improve economy or that more flexibility may, may reduce economy. But it doesn't seem to be a controlled intervention. Uh, whereas, And there's also a controlled intervention, actually, that showed that after 10 weeks of uh, uh, cont- chronic stretching, uh, a very, very diligent program over 10 weeks that significantly increased flexibility, that didn't change the running economy at all. So actually, yeah, three studies that... Two studies that showed uh, that examined the relationship between flexibility and running economy and found no relationship. And the third was an intervention. Does stretching improve or reduce economy? It didn't change economy. So that's at least based on this study, although I haven't done an exhaustive search myself, I should say that. Uh, But according to this review study that was uh, current as of 2009 at least, we don't really we can't really say that stretching would reduce economy either so in summary for the for running economy high training volume may be hypothesized to be effective for improving running economy i personally believe this but we can't say that for sure based on science and uh, high intensity training anaerobic threshold and vo2 max type training seems to improve economy but uh there's no comparison of the relative efficacy of, of different forms of, of those types of training. So, so we don't really know much about it. And that's another limitation that I will talk about later in general for, 
everything we know about running training, the control groups and everything seems to be lacking. But but the point being here that anaerobic threshold training and high intensity interval training, they probably do something to improve economy. And strength training definitely does and stretching probably doesn't change running economy based on what we know. But for all of these except for strength training, there is there are question marks about what the optimal way to do things are. So yeah, we know that high-intensity training improves economy, but what kind of high-intensity training is the best, really? That's the question that we tried to answer and that these researchers with this paper tried to answer, but uh, concluded that they could not. So let's talk about a bit about some limitations of uh, the current literature and the current evidence. So first of all, we have uh, the fact that the basis of most of the studies included in this review was that they they included one or more specific types of training in addition to the runner's normal training. And this normal training was typically not described or only briefly described. And the training, the phase of season that the runners were in wasn't described either. So there it just isn't possible to compare the runner's training before and during the training intervention because of this lack of knowledge. And that is uh, probably the main factor that, that uh, prevents interpreting these studies uh, as well as we would like to. And probably the second greatest limitation is that uh, only very few of the studies had had more than one group. They had a con- either a control group or two experimental groups that they compared. So there are very few comparisons that we can mate, make to to really evaluate what type of training is more effective than another. And uh, But there are some other factors as well, other limitations, including that many studies did not control the runner's training load. So if they added intense training, did they make sure that the total training stress or training volume at least was the same? Not necessarily. And obviously, as mentioned already, very small sample sizes in a lot of these studies, and that results in a low statistical power. So we may have results that are negative. They're not statistically significant, although they improved something by 5%, which is a lot in in these populations, which are most of these are still well-trained runners. Their VO2 maxes when starting a study. If you look at this table, I'll link to this study. It's a free PDF on the internet. And you look at the initial VO2 max and, and a lot of these runners had uh, VO2 maxes of, or the average for most studies were in the, I would say average was maybe 58 to 62. There are a lot of studies that have uh, initial VO2 maxes in the in the 60s, so between 60 and maybe even 66, 67, 68. And then there are quite a few in the 50s. And obviously, depending on if it's male or female athletes, then that also affects that. But anyway, they're well-trained runners. There, there's no doubt about that. So... Uh, yeah, I already forgot what my point about that was, but probably it wasn't too important. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, okay. So moving on to that, fe- moving on from that, those well-trained runners. Again, what we had with the aerobic threshold, we had quite a few studies that were done in sedentary individuals, and and that is obviously a big limitation because we can't directly apply that knowledge uh, to formulate training recommendations for runners or coaches just because these individuals likely will respond to whatever training you throw at them. So, yeah, it it doesn't make... If we would have comparative studies, then sure, that could be potentially beneficial. But if we have just one control group of individuals and they improve by 15%, we still can't say that this is an effective training method. Because they would have maybe improved by the same amount or even more on another type of training. So, the the authors of this study conclude that... uh, 
it would be difficult to argue against the view that there is insufficient direct scientific evidence to formulate training recommendations based on the limited research. Scientists can still formulate worthwhile training recommendations by in integrating the information derived from training studies with other scientific knowledge. And here's my own comment. That's when what I talked about, for example, when saying that we know that physiologically VO2 max uh, should improve or improves from big training volume, but we haven't seen that from training intervention studies. All right, so I continued the, the citation or the uh, quote from the study. This knowledge includes the acute physiological responses in the various exercise domains, the structures and processes that limit the physiological determinants of long-distance running performance, and the adaptations associated with their enhancement. So let me just make a quick summary of everything I talked about in this uh, arguably too long and too complicated episode, but as we'll get into, that's what you want to hear. So, uh, the quick summary is that both high-intensity training at the anaerobic threshold or above, up to or above the VO2 max, and resistance training seem to have their place in good run training programs for various reasons, including probably improving running economy and uh, aerobic threshold and VO2 max what is the most effective? We don't quite know yet, but uh, but all of these can have a place in a good running pro program. The yeah, the sad thing is that we can't say which one is better than the other, and uh, therefore we need to just see what works for the individual, and and that's what you should do anyway, of course. But uh, yeah, just just track your progress and see how you do on certain things. What seems to work for you. And uh, if in doubt, then it's uh, probably better to not lay all your eggs in one basket, but actually you can include both of these kinds of training in a periodized manner, and that will hopefully give you the best of all worlds. Training volume is important too, uh, but training intervention studies have been difficult to conduct and haven't really been showing any additional benefits on these variables. And... Uh, Furthermore, we don't really know if there is a threshold beyond which additional volume isn't really uh, anything that's necessary or beneficial. But if there is, for triathletes, we'll probably never reach that point anyway. For us, it's more of a consideration of how much run training can we realistically do while balancing the other sports and still recover properly. Because that's if we don't recover, it doesn't matter how optimal our training program is. Uh, it's... Uh, it's going to be useless. Uh, any program is useless without appropriate recovery. So that's uh, that's my quick summary. Uh, but but I do think that that what you can take away here is that, as I already talked about in episode eighty one, strength training for running economy, go for it. It's super important. And then having a mix, a periodized mix of VO two max training and anaerobic threshold training at or around that anaerobic threshold is going to be useful one way or another for you. And then you should yourself see how you respond to these different types of training or your coach if you have a coach. So so that's, that's my training recommendation, my actionable takeaway from today's episode, volume. I do believe, especially from my running days, that volume is extremely important. I, when I was running my best, I was running my highest volume. I wasn't necessarily doing the most intensity that I had ever done. And we also know that from from the retrospective studies, the polarized training studies that I mentioned, analyzing the training logs of elite athletes. But for triathletes, I don't think that we should necessarily pay too much attention to running volume because there's there's not room for us to try to to optimize for volume 
for run volume in our training. We can optimize for total volume, but it depends on the goal race. If we're training for an Ironman, then bike volume is going to be even more important. So so you have to sacrifice something. You can't do everything. And run volume would probably have to go to some extent. That's uh, my two cents. All right, so I hope that you enjoyed that review. Be sure to check out the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com and comment there. The the comment section is at the bottom of the episode. If you have any questions or feedback, and I will answer that question or the feedback, get into a discussion with you. Uh, I love to do that. Uh, So this episode is actually a great segue into what I will want to now briefly discuss which is the initial response to the That Triathlon Show 2018 survey that I mentioned last week on the podcast. So just to recap quickly, it's a very quick and easy survey where I simply want to find out what type of content you like the most and would like to hear on this podcast as we move into 2018. And I also want to find out what you think is really good about the podcast and what I can improve upon. So, first off, massive thank you to everybody who submitted their responses. I record this on the 29th of December, and we already have 45 responses, and it helps a ton. I've gained tons of insight. Uh, so, uh, that is, uh, I really, really, really appreciate it, you guys. Uh, can't thank you enough. Uh, and that is just from, by the way, when you heard heard this on the podcast, uh, I, I hadn't, sorry, when, yeah, when... When I record this, I hadn't even you haven't even even heard the podcast where I first announced the survey. That's the way. That's what I wanted to say. I had only posted on uh, the Scientific Triathlon newsletter and on Facebook, so I still expect a lot more replies to come in, responses to the survey after last week's podcast go live, so that there will be a lot more. And every single answer helps a lot. So, uh, yeah, still keep sending in those responses. I I will look at every single one of them in detail. So you can do this survey very quickly because there are only two required questions and they are just checking some boxes. And the first question I ask is uh, you will check the boxes for the question what kinds of episodes you want to hear on the podcast. And you can check all or none or any number in between and add your own suggestions. And and, and there are a few different alternative types of, of content, quite a few. So at this time, there's a very clear top trio favorite and uh, the number one is with 73% of uh, check marks, uh, 73% want to hear solo episodes like this one that are like guides, reviews, summaries, whatever you want to call them. So that's the number one favorite for you guys. And uh, then we have interviews with researchers in second, just behind in 71%, and interviews with coaches in third at 67%. So thanks a lot. That really helped a ton to uh, get a direction for where to go. And then there's a clear gap to the next few content types, like, for example, beginner episodes only have a 16%. So if you're a beginner, you definitely need to go and take that survey and get that up a bit. And then we have 49% is the highest of that rest of the bunch, which is age group interviews. And some content types in between include professional uh triathlete interviews industries with uh, sort interviews with industry people like companies and stuff and um, athlete case studies from my own coaching for example there are a few different types there that fall between that 16% and 49% but they're way behind the uh the top 3 that are around that 70% mark so 
So that question really is the most important question. And then the second question, which is the other required question is similar. It's just for the interviews, what types of guests you'd like me to interview. But it really is very much overlapping with the first question. So I won't get into detail on the results of that here. Then I got tons of great feedback on what you like the most and what I could could improve or add to the podcast. And uh, in the latter categories, uh, what I could improve and uh, things to add. A few quick things that uh, that I want to highlight here and that are very useful and interesting uh, are first summarizing the episodes. This is something that I try to do and I just did uh, with actionable takeaways and also a summary of what I just talked about. Uh, I hope that helps. I think that helps. That should help. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll do my best to do that for most or all episodes. That's a very good one and, and an easy one to do and doesn't add to the length of the podcast. Then several people suggested more case studies, either just generally as hearing about how people like normal age groupers uh, did who did big improvements in triathlon went about doing it. And some suggested seeing case studies from my own coaching and athletes that I coach. And another perspective of this same kind of uh, topic is something that a couple of people pointed out. For example, uh, seeing how people in the real world apply this science that uh, that we talk about on the podcast. So, so that's or maybe it's me just pointing out some people that that I know apply this science and and the results that they have. So that's uh, all falls under the umbrella of case studies. I w- I would say that's a uh, that's a good one. And uh, yeah. Um, I'll still wait for the final results to come in for a couple of weeks, probably, but uh, definitely something that I'm interested in, in at least trying out a few case studies. One person suggested that it would be great to have features on each episode. For example, in addition to an interview, I would do something like This Week in Science or a product review feature or a book review or a book to read. And uh, I like this idea a lot. It's something that I've actually had in my mind myself a lot, but at the same time, I'm a bit concerned about episodes becoming too long for some people, and that's actually something that I should have asked about in the survey. What you think about uh, what the duration of the podcast and and what what you how long you'd like them to be, uh, because they have been growing in length. There's uh, no doubt about that. Uh, that's the direction it has been going. So when you go and answer the survey, if you have an opinion on the duration of the podcast. You can you can write that in the last question, which is something like other suggestions and comments. So it's basically a free form field. And, and please, if you have any opinions about the duration of the episodes, then write in that suggestion box. Uh, and uh, one person wrote for things to improve. Uh, I like it how it is, except I don't like the advertising. <laughs> and for transparency, I wanted to include that here. Uh, I can understand that some people don't like advertising, but um, I have have to say that they're definitely here to stay uh, because uh, I have to put food on the table, hopefully something more than ramen noodles from time to time, at least the weekends. And uh, I also, I I coach people, I quit my engineering job to do the triathlon thing, which is uh, economically pretty challenging and uh, would be impossible without some sponsor help. And with my coaching, I only coach 15 athletes, cap it at 15 athletes, which is way less than most full-time coaches do, at least capping it voluntarily at 15, 15 athletes. Uh, but that's just because of the way I like to do it. I, I want, want it to be like premium, very, very hands-on and, and be very involved in every single athlete. But that also caps my income from coaching. And uh, so 
on the podcast, uh, I guess that yeah, you'll. I hope you can live with having sponsors there, uh, so so I can put food on the table and uh, and get some uh, bike gear from time to time as well. That's always my, or triathlon stuff. That's always nice. Nice to do that, and and at least I want to to reiterate that I genuinely, authentically handpick sponsors and only work with relevant sponsors that I truly, truly believe in, and uh, and. I'm impressed by as companies and I've been approached by quite a few different companies that I've outright declined without even entering any negotiations I could put a ridiculous sum in and see just if it <laughs> if if they go for it but I don't because I wouldn't feel like I can genuinely endorse them uh, sometimes just from lack of knowledge about them if you're listening to some other podcasts in the endurance world, you'll know as a good example a certain insurance company uh, that approached me and since I don't know anything about insurance, I just said, sorry, I can't do that. And that's just one example. But with companies like Precision Hydration, Triathlon Corner and Ventum, I do genuinely uh, authentically endorse them because I know what they're doing is uh, top notch. Is uh, It's the best quality stuff in their respective fields. So anyway, yeah, that's that's it for the uh, suggestions and uh, improvement points. Then it clearly seems, for the things that you think you like the most about the podcast, it clearly seems that there are a lot of comments about these things. The in-depth science-backed information, the structure, the quality of research and the quality of the guests, and the objectiveness. And about that last point, uh, that's another thing that I want to be transparent about. I don't think that anybody is 100% objective. I definitely know that I'm not 100% objective, but I do, however, do the best I can. And I try to always remember and be aware of my own cognitive biases and challenge them to minimize any detriments that my subjective opinions might cause otherwise. And and for that reason, it's also great to have a mix of interviews with a lot of different expert guests with varying opinions. And uh, because that can that forces me to think and potentially change my mind and be open-minded to new new ideas and new things. One very specific example of of where I changed my mind quite a bit recently is the utility of lab tests for triathletes. And I used to think that they didn't really translate that well into practice and day-to-day training, even for like even if you had like the time and money to go and do those tests, I, I thought, well, why bother when you can do an FTP test? But but chatting with, with Alan Cousins really made me, that was episode 79, that really made me change my mind quite a lot about that. And uh, and yeah, that, that's just one example of how these interviews are great for, for keeping that objectiveness as well, for from my own perspective. Yeah, one more thing, the show notes was mentioned several times as a, a couple more things actually that I listed here. The show notes was me- mentioned several times as a thing that you like a lot. And uh, one person wrote, this is funny, uh, the information and your dry humor. humor. And uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that comes very naturally to me. So I'm glad you like it because it would be very, very hard for me to change that. And uh, another comment that I'm happy I saw there was uh, the actionable advice. Because a podcast like this could easily turn into just science reviews without clear guidance on the application. And I think that uh, I've had that in most of these kinds of episodes and and other episodes as well, like interviews. But as mentioned, having case study examples could make it even more clear and tangible. So that's something I'll look into. So to sum up how I'll use this information to keep improving the podcast is... First, I'll still wait for more results to come in and do my final an- analysis in, in a couple of weeks, probably. So uh, 
so yeah, uh, keep sending in your responses. But it definitely looks like I'll put more emphasis on creating solo episodes like this one. There's one caveat to this that uh, you wouldn't believe the amount of time it takes to prepare these episodes. So there's no way I can have them every week. I'll try to do them more often than I have before though. So maybe at least one per month, but maybe two per month. Uh, it depends. Uh, but I'll try to do that. M- definitely more more of them than before. And I'll also try to increase the number of researchers that I, that I interview a bit because they these interviews have been fewer than the response to this survey indicate that you would like. So definitely that's something that will change. I think I have already a good number of coaches that I interview. I'm pretty happy with, with that. I'm still undecided about interviewing athletes. For pros, I would say probably not, even though there were quite a few who wanted that. If I do, it would be very rarely special cases. If you give me Ali Brownlee or Flora Duffy, I probably will. <laughs> Some other uh, people as well. But but it's not something that I'll actively probably try to seek out. I think there are other podcasts that do a good job of that. Uh, age groupers is more likely. And it was actually more of you wanted to hear age group interviews than pro interviews, even though it was close. But it would have to be for a specific sort of goal with the episode. Like what will the listener take away from the episode? Uh, so... and. Coaching case studies, I'm undecided here as well, but definitely I'll try to include more examples from my own coaching uh, and where relevant illustrate uh, with examples from from my own coaching, for example, of what I do and how I apply this science in coaching and and what results that has brought. Uh, That's important as well. Uh, But uh, as for actually... Full, fully blown uh, coaching case studies. We'll we'll have to wait and see for the results and see how popular that uh, that answer, that kind of topic, becomes before I decide. And finally, beginner episodes. Even though the response here was pretty small, when I did the the call out in uh, last autumn, uh, sometime about if you want short beginner quick tip episodes. Uh, send me an email. I did get quite a bit more than the 10 responses that I needed, but I was just so, so, so uh, pressed for time that I couldn't do it at the moment. But I'll try to, I'll do an experiment with it and hopefully release one of those beginner quick tip episodes every Friday. And you heard one last Friday, the first one, and I'll hopefully keep releasing them every Friday. But uh, for how long? I, I want to do them every week of the year, but it depends on the response that they get. So if you're a beginner, make sure that you let me know if they are useful to you or not. And uh, also the download numbers will obviously indicate whether you are listening or or not. So so that, that will be an experiment, but one that I hope I can continue with having those separate 5 to 10 minute beginner quick tip episodes uh, every Friday, so, so that uh, there's kind of a di- distinction between the advanced, more advanced, and the more beginner episode, more so than there has been. All right, this was a long, long episode. I hope that you are still here, and if you are, thank you very much. The next episode, which will be released on Monday, uh, I think. Uh, I'm not sure what day this will be released. It will be on Monday or Thursday, depending on what day today is. Uh, I'll talk to South African double Olympian, but nowadays triathlon coach, Kate Roberts. And uh, that is an interview that I very much look forward to. I haven't talked to her yet. We'll do that in just a few days. Remember to go to scientifictriathlon.com and slash survey scientifictriathlon.com forward slash survey it's linked to in the episode description and in the show notes and you can make your opinion count thank you again to precision hydration for sponsoring this episode and for helping me eat 
something else than ramen noodles, you can find them on precisionnarration.com and use the discount code show, all caps, all one word, for 15% off. And thank you to Triathlon Corner and to Jan uh, Bousset, the new online home of shopping the best triathlon products in the world to great prices. Check them out at triathloncorner.store and that's triathlon-corner.store. Or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>